Virginia and Virginia Tech had their football seasons effectively buried by Louisville and Pittsburgh. Meanwhile, JMU breaks into the AP rankings, and Clemson looks like a title contender yet again. We'll talk about all that and get some betting tips from Mike Sveditz of Front Page Bets this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome to episode 92 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and here with me as always, my co-host, the 14-time sports writer of the year, and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you? Good morning. So you you took a trip to Pittsburgh. Uh, anything of note aside from the football uh, from your travels? Uh, brutal, brutal traffic. On Friday, getting up there, uh, but otherwise pretty much uneventful. Interesting. So we had covered a tech pit game. Uh, this was myself and your predecessor, Paul Woody, when he was the columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And we came out of the stadium and we, we kind of stumbled into uh, an Oktoberfest celebration. And uh, <laughs> Paul's usually pretty quick about getting on the road and, and getting home. Uh, once he's done writing, but he was he was down for Oktoberfest, so I always remember that uh, that trip sitting out there, and I think I had a Wiener Schnitzel and uh, maybe even a beer. I can't remember which one of us was driving the rental car, so uh, that's what I thought of when I realized you'd be in Pittsburgh right around that that time of year. Uh, David, we'll, we'll both be this week in Charlotte for ACC basketball media days. I know we're we're in the heart of football season and that's where everybody's focus is, but especially the way things are going here in the Commonwealth, <laughs> maybe nice to get a little basketball in. Yeah, I think there's optimism around both Virginia, certainly, and in my mind, Virginia Tech as well. I believe they'll both be in the upper half of the ACC, which this season will be quite the challenge, I think, to land in that upper half. The conference, to me, looks loaded. And unlike a season ago, there's a ton of returning talent. Once again, many of the schools did some really good business in the portal. So whereas last season, there wasn't a single regular season game that matched ranked ACC teams, I think we will get more than our fair share this season. Absolutely. And you wrote a little bit about the outlook for the conference uh, this morning. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's uh, David's column on richmond.com, looking at the all-conference team and the preseason projections. And But yeah, I, I think that is, you know, for us, the, the big storyline is, I think we have two teams that are going to be pretty darn good. Uh, and you're right, in a league that I think is ready to redeem itself. Now, I don't know if it has to redeem itself because it had a great postseason last mm-hmm. year, but but redeem itself from, I think, the hit maybe the image took uh, with the way they started, the non-conference. Again, it's going to be super important for the ACC to get off to uh, a better start in non-conference play, to acquit itself better uh, in some of those matchups. But you know, I think at the end of the day, the eye test, it's going to be hard to deny uh, how good, and, and everyone's going to look at Carolina, and rightfully so, what do they have? Four starters four back, stars and back, yeah. including Armando Bacon. I mean, everyone's going to look there to start uh, from a national runner-up. But uh, yeah, I think throughout the league, I, I think it's going to be a very good year in the ACC. It's going to be fun to watch, <laughs> less fun to watch, David. Although you did see some history, was Virginia Tech's <laughs> defense just getting absolutely obliterated uh, by Israel Abanaconda, uh, the running back from Pittsburgh, a record-setting day, breaks Tony Dorsett 
record for, for rushing yards in a single game. David, you and I both went into this year thinking that tech defense is going to be pretty good and can maybe carry them through. The last few weeks, it certainly hasn't looked that way. What, what's going wrong on, on that side of the ball? Pretty much everything. <laughs> Number one, they're not healthy. No Taiwan Garbett on Saturday, their best pass rusher. And a guy who at defensive end can set that edge against the run. They're not healthy at corner. Dorian Strong, their best cover guy. Uh, he did not play again. So they, they've been out there with some true freshman corners. But Mike and, and Brent Pry will, will concede this and says it willingly, actually, that that does not excuse fundamental lapses in run fits, just simple gap fits. And that's what that's what you saw from a Banacanda. You know, his first five carries on Saturday netted minus one yard. <laughs> and and fans were booing the offense off the field. They weren't they weren't angry at a Banacanda. They were angry at Frank Signetti Jr.'s play call. I mean, they were all up in arms. And you talk about method to the madness. He was just softening up that tech defense. And the next thing you know, Izzy is going off 320 yards. It's the most yards by an ACC back since Andre Williams set the conference record of 340-something against NC State back in 2013. (laughs) But it was, you know, I think on three of his six touchdowns, he was untouched, yeah. including the 80-yard dagger. We vote in those uh, the weekly ACC player of, of the week. <laughs> I really enjoyed Ross Hell of Clemson. Uh, you, the SIDs of each school nominate the players from their team yes. who are outstanding. And he just put a note by running back. He, he also nominated see of Banacanda. And his comments, you know, where they usually put stats and information to back up the nomination, he just wrote, yeah. <laughs> and, yep. and I thought that was really good. And I thought it was really good that, that EJ Borghetti, the outstanding uh, SID at Pittsburgh, made sure to nominate an offensive lineman. Because oh, yeah. as you mentioned, and I went back and watched, not that Abanacanda didn't have an amazing day. Certainly he did. But there were certainly some holes where uh, lesser backs, everyone likes to say you or I, could have <laughs> picked up some yards behind that line. So uh, it, it was a complete domination in, in that regard, opening up holes and just controlling the line of scrimmage. It was, and you know, much to prize chagrin and and that of the, the fan base, and I'm sure the players. This came on a day where the offense showed a pulse. You know, two consecutive games of ten points or less in the losses to West Virginia and North Carolina, and so few explosive plays. And then all of a sudden, there they go. And hey, to the Hokies' credit, you know they're they're down. They had they had squandered a sixteen to seven lead that lasted about a minute. And Pitt scored twenty four consecutive points. And you're thinking it's going to get really ugly. But all of a sudden, you know Tech got two quick touchdowns, including one on a block punt that they recovered in the end zone. And it's a two point game. And they're, they've got the ball in the fourth quarter. They're driving. And Caleb Smith, who was Virginia Tech's best player all day, more than 150 yards in receptions, he catches a first down throw over the middle, takes a lick, which ends up putting him in the injury tent, and he did not return. But he fumbled the ball away. Pitt recovers, and it just deflated Virginia Tech. 
Yeah, both both of these teams, Virginia and Virginia Tech, had fumbles by their star players in, in potentially key moments. Uh, we'll we'll get to Virginia later, but you're right. That was it, it. Did feel like okay, this team's got plenty of fight. They're back in this game. All of those kind of things, David. The thing that I was maybe most encouraged about, and it, right or wrong, it feels like every snap is a referendum on a new coach. Right? You got Brent Pry. It's his first year, and everybody wants to evaluate him in real time. And first down, is he a good coach? Second down, is he a good coach? At the end of the game, is he a good coach? Going into this week, you know, and we, we understand. The reality is we're not going to know how the Brent Pryor works out for Virginia Tech for a number of years. But a thing that I was encouraged by was they spent the week talking about wanting to be more explosive on offense, that that was a focal point. It was a thing they were emphasizing in their game plan, in their preparation, in their practice, in their mindset. And I thought they came out and were more explosive offensively. To me, that's very encouraging when a coach can say, we're focusing on this and get it done in a week. Yes, absolutely. And Caleb Smith was a big part of that. And I'll tell you who else was Malachi Thomas. To have him back at running back first time this season, he's been dealing with, with, with a nagging lower body injury and they did not baby him back. <laughs> you know, I, I, I forget how many carries he had, but, and he also caught five passes, but he rushed for 84 yards. His first touch of the season was a five yard touchdown, but his presence in that backfield was very, very transforming. I thought for the offense. Yeah, certainly a, a weapon that they need. <laughs> uh, we, we've talked all year and, and kind of banged them on the fact that they just they don't have a lot at the skill positions, and, and he will be uh, hopefully going forward uh, in addition that, that can make a difference for um, a unit that, like I said, it, it showed signs of life. Now, they play a game that, that, David, I think we both probably had circled on our calendars before the year, and uh, if you circled it in pencil, you can go ahead and kind of rub that rub that circle out now. My, Miami comes to Lane Stadium. Uh, so much talk in the offseason about the history of this rivalry and uh, with a change going forward in the ACC schedule. But it feels right, like like all the shine is, is off this one. The Hokies are, are kind of a, a train wreck their season, slipping away. Miami comes in having lost three in a row. Uh, not the matchup we were looking for, is it? Mike, I did some research this morning. This will be the 40th football game between Virginia Tech and Miami. It will be the first in which both teams have losing records. I, I knew right away where you were going. It's uh, and and that when you talk about what we open with, right? The ACC brand and and being strong and the ACC needs more out of Miami. It needs more out of Virginia Tech. This needs mm-hmm. to be a game that we circled for a reason. Uh, Mario Cristobal, you know, new coach there, a lot of excitement and energy and and. You know, maybe it's a matter of for both of these programs, it's just going to take some time. I think we feel that way, certainly with the Hokies. Um, but very disappointing, I think, for both teams. Uh, not that we thought they would be college football playoff teams this year, but I think very disappointing for both programs where they're at uh, six weeks into the season. Yeah, I mean, and Miami was very close Saturday at home against Carolina. Mac Brown really has the Hurricanes number since returning to Chapel Hill. He's now 4-0 uh, against Miami. Uh, but this one came right down to the wire, 27-24. Tyler Van Dyke threw for 496 and lost. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I mean that that's like a Brennan Armstrong game from last <laughs> season, right? Yeah, well, it's it's to me it's even worse because a lot of times you pile up those huge passing totals because you're way behind. Uh, he did that in a tight ball game, a mm-hmm. one possession ball game, and um, that was the TVD that I think everybody's expecting to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you know, like I said, we'll get into it with Armstrong, but but maybe uh, Devin Leary. Some of these quarterbacks have gotten off to slow starts with a lot of expectations, but but maybe they still have some of their best football ahead of them. It certainly looked that way, and you've got to imagine if you're Miami's offense. You look at the way Tex played against Pitt, against Carolina, against West Virginia, and you got to think like, "Hey, man, we, we we can make some we can make some moves in this one." You would think so, but Miami, Mike, is a program that historically, and maybe it will be different under Mario Cristobal. But when Miami programs or Miami teams have gotten down before, <laughs> they have stayed down far more frequently than they have gotten up. Yeah. I'm and glad you bring that up. It's such an interesting thing because you've seen it throughout your career. Why is it that some programs have that, for lack of a better term, in their DNA, where you mentioned there have been coaching change after coaching change after coaching change, and yet you can say that about Miami regardless of who's the big whistle? Yeah, it's maybe it's because expectations down there are so high that when, okay, we're not going to win the national championship this year. We're done. What's the point? I, I, I don't know if it's as simple as that or if, if there's something else culturally, systemically with, within that program. You wouldn't think so because, as you mentioned, there have been so many coaching transitions. <laughs> you think the culture has flipped enough to clean whatever mm-hmm. that is out. Well, it will be it will be interesting to see. It will be interesting to see, I think, for two first year coaches, how they handle losing, right? How they handle mm-hmm. the lack of success. And uh, that's what's going on at UVA, where the program had been successful under Bronco Mendenhall. He stepped away. Tony Elliott comes in and, and to his credit, I, I suppose he, he has a vision of what he wants to do. He isn't. Um, going halfway. There's no half measures. There's no trying to be a little bit like the past. He got pretty animated when our colleague Hank Hertz of the Associated Press asked him again, comparing to last year. And and he said, this isn't last year. And I'm tired of hearing about last year. He was pretty irked by it. Um, You know, his point being, this is a new year. It's a new team. And he is establishing a program the way he wants Virginia to run, not for 12 games, right? But for 12 years, right? For the long haul. Now, right now, it isn't working well. I don't think anybody would argue that. Louisville came in off a loss to Boston College. It didn't have its star quarterback, Malik Cunningham, dealing with concussion issues, and and none of that mattered. Uh, David, I I think that's as discouraging a performance as I've seen out of Virginia in a long time. Agreed. Because, you know, if not Saturday, then then when? (laughs) You know, Louisville was winless. And Scott Satterfield may have been coaching for his job Saturday. I don't think that's hyperbole. If if the Cardinals go to 0-4 in the league, I'm not sure he survives the weekend. And to lead 10-0 and then to see Brennan Armstrong fumble it away in the red zone and then to, that deflated them. But why? You're still ahead two scores. You're still playing a team at home that for all intents and purposes, you should beat. And they're playing their backup quarterback. And oh, by the way, they had other cats who were missing. But no, you end up getting outscored 34-7 to the rest of that game. And hey, I appreciate Tony Elliott's dedication 
and focus on on his vision. You've got to be true to yourself. There's there's no other way to do it when you're the leader. But but there has to be some flexibility in dealing with those you are leading. And I'm not sure he's flexible enough right now. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point that um, you, you can be building your foundation and building towards your vision. But every coach we've ever talked to talks about the idea that you're always going to tailor what you want to do to what you have. And it, it does not feel like Tony Elliott has tailored his vision to this year's personnel. Um Again, it's a tough balance. I get what he's doing. He's laying the groundwork, um, but particularly offensively. And they had their best day throwing the football, David, and they had it, as Des Kitchings pretty candidly told me, because they couldn't run the damn ball. So it forced them to just be drop back and throw it, which is kind of what the fans have been clamoring for. Uh, Brendan Armstrong has his first 300-yard passing game, but you know, there's still turnovers. You mentioned the fumble. There's also a couple interceptions. He threw two picks. Four or five drop passes, again, from receivers who last year weren't dropping them. Uh, penalties, they only get the 17 points. A game. It just, again, David, this was an offense that was putting up 35 points a game last season and just continues to sputter. And after the game, I talked to Brennan Armstrong about that. I'm always like, you know, it's a whole new year. And uh, there's not... There's nothing even close. Like, yeah, there's the same players in a sense, but like, there's, no, there's nothing that's kind of similar from, to last year. And, uh, you know, we're at this point in the season where there's no point even. <laughs> I know it's, it, it stinks from going from one of the best to the one of the worst right now, and I, it, that does suck. But, like, you can't look at it that way. It's like we're, we're game, you know, was this, we're two and four right now. We get, that was game six. We're this far into the season, and, you know, we're still not seeing production or anything that's going on what we want to be in the, the new offense. So uh, there's just no time. There's just nothing. There's no reason to look back on that at this moment. Uh, that's something you can do when you're 35 at that point. I mean, like, there's just – we're so present. We're in the moment right now, and this is my legacy. This is some of the – most of the seniors' legacy on this team, and just there's no time to look back. Is it frustrating all for you the idea of – I understand Coach is establishing his offense mm-hmm. and what he wants, you know, this program to look like for 10 years. But for you, it is your last year. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to kind of go back and, and be laying the foundation when you've already kind of done that once? Yeah, it, it's – it's tough in that in that like thought process of it, but like you kind of lay a foundation every year in a sense. Um, you kind of restart, reevaluate, and then you kick it off again. Uh, now we're doing a whole new offense, which is understandable. New players, new new uh, new schemes, all that stuff. But it just, I feel like it just comes down to most. It comes down to execution and the players. Uh, I feel like we have a good grasp on what we're trying to do now. A lot of the guys really do. Uh, it's just about execution, and we're not doing that. Well, David, and it's not just that offense uh, that, that wishes it could go back to, to last year. You know, last year the defense was a train wreck, right? And all of a sudden it, it seemed like that was fixed. Early on, it looked like this defense, like we talked about with Virginia Tech, might be a unit that could carry this team. Well, the defense is regressing. The defense is, <laughs> I guess, going back to last year. Uh, Duke and Louisville games were, were not impressive. Uh, there's been no pass rush. And Cunningham's backup. Brock Doman uh, came out, missed his first four throws, looked like somebody who was going to be absolutely swallowed up by the moment Saturday, ended up settling in 
no pressure on him, didn't take hits, and he ended up having a, a really good game. He was uh, 17 of 30 for 275 yards and a touchdown. He did throw two picks, but he also had, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the play of the play game, of the game. Uh, when he had the, this 44-yard touchdown on, on a keeper that uh, Jonas Sanker made a mistake, came in inside too hard. Uh, and credit to Scott Satterfield, who you mentioned, is still very much on the hot seat. You can tell if a backup quarterback was prepared on a play like that because Doman takes the snap. He reads the play perfectly. And, and David, everyone in the stadium was fooled on this yes. play, but he made the perfect read. He was clearly prepared for what he was going to see from the defense. Um, that touchdown in terms of a positive play for Louisville, that that was the biggest play in the game. Obviously, Armstrong's fumble is, is where it got away for Virginia. Uh but to me, the problems with this defense are extremely alarming because I thought this was the unit that was going to kind of keep them afloat till Armstrong figured things out. Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. Was that not a fourth and two? Yes, it was a fourth down conversion. And, yes. and, and we've seen that before, David, because you just you crash so hard wanting to stuff that ball. Mm-hmm. But it, it goes back to, and you know, Bud Foster always talked about, hey, Everybody do your job, yep. right? And it'll be fun. And Jonas Sanker was the one guy on that play. Um, and he's had a great year and he's a really good player. So not to pick on him, but he didn't do his job. And Doman did. Doman read it and and bam, he's off. Untouched. Much like Izzy Abanikin. <laughs> not a good sign when we're talking about multiple, right? Multiple backs being uh, untouched against these defenses. David, now they're two and four. They're at the open date. Where do they go from here? Well, they go to Atlanta, Mike, not to be glib. <laughs> I, I knew that. <laughs> yes. And I'm not sure I've got anything more for you. Uh, I'll, I'll be curious, and we'll, we'll never know, but how Tony Elliott and his staff approach this open date. And because we always hear coaches talk about self-evaluation during the open date, right? Well, I wonder how much time the coaches will take evaluating themselves and that maybe, just maybe, it might dawn on them that they need to show a little flexibility on the offensive side. I I don't know. Georgia Tech's won won two in a row under Brent Key, the the interim. All of a sudden, the the Jackets are 2-0 in in the coastal uh, title contender, I don't think. But who knows in, in, in uh, in this division. But, I mean, that, that's a game Virginia's got to have. And, you know, then they're three and four and have a fighting chance. Yeah, that, that chance keeps getting worse and worse. And you're right that, you know, Georgia Tech, this stretch here with Louisville, Georgia Tech, looked like a chance to get right, win a couple games and, and get your season going in a position where you can still qualify for a bowl. Louisville loses. Georgia Tech looks like a much tougher out than we thought they were four weeks ago. Um, and to be fair, and credit to Brent Keyes, they are a tougher out than they were four weeks ago. They're right. playing better football right now. Um, but yeah, th- things are are certainly uh, not healthy, not good with Virginia. And yeah, I, I wrote about it this morning. Tony Elliott hasn't dealt with losing in a long time. The last time he was part of a losing team was 2010, when he was the wide receivers coach at Furman, and that team went five and six. So not even a you know a disaster off the rails type year. I asked him about that after the game, and he pointed to hardship at Clemson. And with all due respect to the hardship they faced at Clemson, <laughs> it wasn't two and four hardship 
It wasn't staring down two and ten or three and nine hardship. Uh, he pointed to his first year there uh, when they did at one point lose back to back games. That was hardship. Uh, again, not on the level Virginia's experiencing. And he pointed to a, a very ugly uh, end of the season, the where, Orange Bowl, the Orange Bowl, where they lost what seventy to thirty three. Yep. Uh, a humbling game, a game that, that really, I think, in many ways did did shake that program. And he talked about the mindset of coming back from that. Now, the difference, and what I was trying to get at with him is, there's a difference between having that end your year and you spend spring ball with that driving you and the preseason and you have all that versus the wheels are coming off and, and you're still skating down that track, right? He's still only halfway through the season. Um I think this is a unique challenge for Tony Elliott uh, to deal with this failure while it's ongoing. And can he turn it around? And, and maybe can, maybe can't. Maybe this becomes, hey, Bronco won two games his first year and things ended up okay there. Uh, but certainly I, I'd say I'd say we very discouraging where they are. And, and you bring up a great point about the flexibility. Have they shown or will they show inability to adjust? Well, if this conversation or six years ago, it would be very similar. Because mm-hmm. Bronco Mendenhall had never had a losing season as a head coach in 11 years at BYU. He was accustomed to going to postseason every season mm-hmm. at BYU. And then he comes in and endures 2-12. and 12. And as you noted, then things picked up in a hurry. And he will concede that he had to change some things and he had to recalibrate where he thought things were. Now, the big difference is, thanks to Bronco Mendenhall, Tony Elliott inherited a much more talented roster than did Bronco Mendenhall back in 2016. So, And I think that's where, rightfully so, the Virginia faithful are discouraged. Yeah, because Tony Elliott also inherited something else from Bronco Mendenhall. He inherited more expectation. Um you're absolutely right about that. Now we haven't we haven't done this this year because we no longer have our our esteemed producer Dean Hoffmeyer on with us while we record the podcast. Uh, but our take it or leave it, our who you got segments. If we did that, David, I think we'd be asking Virginia, Virginia Tech, which team has the best chance to turn things around and, and maybe make a run at a bowl game still this season? So, David, I'll ask it: Who you got? <laughs> Mike, the old multiple choice test yet in school? None of the above. <laughs> Is that, is that an option? I, I, sadly, I think it's the correct answer. <laughs> I'm looking for a lifeline here, pal. <laughs> but I, I keep, I keep for the life of me, Mike. I keep coming back to Virginia because I've seen on the offensive side, I've seen it before from this. I, I and I get it. It's not the same offensive line, and it's not the same playbook. I, I get all. But I've seen Armstrong, I've seen Dontavian Wicks and Keaton Thompson and Lavelle Davis Jr. And yeah, I know Jelani Woods isn't there anymore and he's in the NFL. But man, oh man, I just think with those guys on that side of the ball, at some point in the in the schedule's gonna get dicier and I and I get all that, but you know, they get Carolina at home. Carolina always comes up small in Charlottesville for whatever reason. So I'll say Virginia, but like I said, if if none of the above was an option on this multiple choice test, I'd be checking that one. So I, I kind of lean that way in terms of, I don't think Virginia Tech's very good, right? At some point, it just comes down to that. I don't think Virginia Tech's very good. 
Virginia, I think, is better than they've played. But you bring up the point that, that makes me kind of scared to, to pick the who's here, which is that schedule. Um, now, the silver lining is certainly four of these games are at home, four in a row at home. Uh, if you go to Georgia Tech and win, which, again, is no longer a slam dunk, you play Miami. They've been all over the board. We just talked about them as we're getting ready for the Tech game. North Carolina, who has been the best team in, in the Coastal, but you mentioned uh, has, has not acquitted itself well in, in these moments against UVA. Uh, Pitt, who certainly looked dominant this weekend, but also lost to Georgia Tech. A Coastal Carolina team that um, is a better, probably group of five opponent than Virginia would have wanted. And then the rivalry game. I think the schedule makes it really tough. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the answer is uh, neither of these teams. And um, that's certainly where, where, where I would put my money. And speaking of, of putting our money places, here's our <laughs> next guest. We're joined now by Mike Sveditz, General Manager of Front Page Bets, for his weekly visit to share some insight into the point spreads and the sports betting side of things. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you, bud? Excellent. Good to talk to you, as always. And, Mike, we've only got half the, the slate this week because Virginia's on a bye, but uh, we're looking at, at a Miami team coming to Blacksburg. The Hurricanes have lost three in a row. Uh, their season kind of hanging in the balance a bit, but they're seven and a half point favorites. So more than a touchdown in, in Lane Stadium. Uh, what do you make of this line and, and where would you be leaning? I mean, after the game that Tyler Van Dyke had, even in the loss to North Carolina, the guy throws almost for 500 yards, three touchdowns, throws for almost 74%. I mean, you know, when, when you're playing like that, even in a loss, and then you're Virginia Tech, which, you know, I don't have to tell you after after this weekend, it, it, it looks like, you know, is that all seven and a half? Is that it? <laughs> we might want to go more than that. You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, and I know we're not going to talk about Virginia, but I think the two Virginia teams, you know, in, in the ACC are just, it, it's a struggle bus right now. You know, the new coaches trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, and, and this is no disrespect to JMU, but when JMU is the best team in the state, you know, something's wrong. Yeah, year one playing at that FPS level, and they've already kind of jumped you. Uh, yeah, and they're ranked. And they're ranked. Yeah. I, hey, I, I had them in my top twenty-five ballot last week, uh, so I've two weeks in a row. I was a week early, I guess, on them. But uh, well, maybe you'll get some love instead of all the hate you usually get for your. I would ballot. say there's finally finally a fan base that appreciates. Although Kentucky and Tennessee, I have to give them a shout out. Kentucky yeah. and Tennessee fans have uh, been very supportive all, all year. So hey, I got you, Tennessee. I got Tennessee beating Alabama this week. By the way, you heard it here first. I wrote about it in August. I'm just saying. So when it happens, we can. You heard it here first. Still riding that Hendon Hooker train, so you like you like the Hurricanes though comfortably at Lane. I do, I do, and and again until we talked about it last week, we talked about it the week before. Until Virginia Tech Tech proves that they can score, that they can stop somebody. I mean, they were in the game with Pittsburgh yesterday, and then you know I, I, what a great performance you know by the Pittsburgh running back, and and I I think you know six anytime you score six touchdowns running for over three hundred yards, I mean it's it's an amazing feat, but you shouldn't be able to run like that on a group five defense. I, I especially one with Brent Pry coming in from Penn state, all the, you know, the, the, the pageantry that came with it. I, I just, I, and again, if you're Virginia tech with the pedigree from, you know, Frank Beamer, I, I just don't, I, I, it, it's a head scratcher how bad this team is right now. And this, and I'm not trying to, you know, I know it's in a transition year, but you know, 
I, I like I like the Hurricanes, and and again, it wouldn't be it would not surprise me if this if this spread even went up to double digits. The way that Virginia Tech is playing versus, and again, Miami they they've lost a couple, but you know they're two and three again, one and four against the spread, but Virginia Tech's one and five against the spread. I, you know, if you're looking again, throw out throw out all the 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 betting metrics that you would use. If you just the eyeball test, Miami is the better team, and and they should win by more than a touchdown. So we mentioned Virginia's off this week, but let's look at another game in the ACC, and that's North Carolina State. Uh, they just kind of rebounded from the Clemson loss with a big win over Florida State. They go to Syracuse. Syracuse is a five-point favorite. I think of Syracuse as an offensive team. I think of State as a defensive team. Syracuse is a five-point favorite. That seems to indicate to me that Vegas is looking for some points. And then I look at an over-under that's, I believe, the lowest in the conference this week at 44. Mike, what does Vegas kind of expect from this matchup? I think they want. They think they're thinking a low-scoring game. You look at two teams that should be able to score points. Like you said, Syracuse can score. The North Carolina State offense, I'm waiting for those guys to get in gear. But, you know, both have five wins. Syracuse is 4-1 against the spread. Uh, they're 4-0 at home. And I think when you look at that team and what Dino's doing up there, this is a team that 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 has really kind of put all the chips in the middle. You know, I think I think you come into the season with coach maybe on the hot seat, North Carolina in Syracuse and Dino Babers, and then you look at North Carolina State, and this was a team that was I thought would challenge for the ACC. They're not out of it. They're only losses to Clemson. This would go a long way for North Carolina State to really prove that they belong in a conversation. Um, and Syracuse, I think they're playing with house money. And, you know, you, you're riding you're riding this team that just, you know, they're, they're playing with house money. Hey, push it all in the middle and let it ride. And and I don't think that's a – that's a – I would probably go with the over here. I'd probably go with the over, though. But, uh, you know, Syracuse undefeated, undefeated at home and 4-1 against the spread. So, you know, do with that as you will. Yeah, it's interesting. If you had told me in the preseason that you'll give me NC State and five points at Syracuse <laughs> – I would have, yeah. I would have probably put the mortgage, but the way things have right. un- unfolded, Devin Leary hasn't been uh, as outstanding as we anticipated. That offense, it does feel like it's just waiting to break out. The defense has been exactly what we thought, but but Syracuse certainly, Mike, you're right, has been one of the surprises in the ACC. Well, there's no surprises for you because you know this stuff like the back of your hand. We, <laughs> we appreciate yeah. you sharing that knowledge with us, and thanks for joining us. All right, Mike, thanks, brother. Well, David, look, looking around that ACC, and, and a year later than maybe we thought that the year after Sam Howell, but UNC looks like the team to, to beat in, in the Coastal. Pittsburgh's impressive game against Tech uh, certainly keeps them in the running in the picture there. You mentioned uh, numerically, statistically at least, Georgia Tech <laughs> is, is right there in that pack. So um, as we look at going into the second half of the season, how do you size up the final year of Coastal Chaos? I think you're right to peg... Carolina is the most impressive team thus far. You know, the last two weeks, the defense, hey, you give up 496 to Tyler Van Dyke, but you only allowed 24 points, which for Carolina's defense, after what it went through against App State and Notre Dame, 24 points is progress and held Virginia Tech to only 10. So um, there you there you go with Gene Chizik, and that's what Mac Brown and his staff envisioned when they brought Chizik back uh, to to become defensive coordinator. But you know, 
Pitt. I can't get that George tackle loss out, out of my head. <laughs> I, I'm like, how do, you, how do you lose that game at home? Much like Virginia the other day. How do you lose that game at home to that opponent? Yeah, you do it if you're flawed, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what that means. And uh, now that the team in the league that, not surprisingly, appears to be closest to being flaw-free <laughs> is shockingly, yet again, Clemson. Uh, now, they had a whale of a fight with Wake Forest. Uh, you were there. That game was just, you know, a, a banger. Uh, a tough but but convincing win yes. over NC State, right? A slow start against Boston College, but then they won that game comfortably. The schedule, like I said, this will be the most Clemson has been tested, in my opinion, uh, during their, their run of greatness here. They play Florida State uh, next then they host in, in Tallahassee in Tallahassee in a night game. Then they host Syracuse, who is still undefeated. Uh, and then they go to Notre Dame. So they've been through Wake, they've been through State, and they still have that in front of them. I think Clemson right now has shown itself to be a top four team, a national title contender, easily the class of this conference. What do you make of the Tigers? And do you think they have enough to navigate that upcoming stretch I just rattled off? Well, and not only that, Mike, they've got a play those pesky Gamecocks of Shane Beamer. <laughs> How about that win? Congratulations, for, for Beamer. Shane on getting Kentucky, albeit without their quarterback, but still a huge yes. win for Shane. Yes, very, very large win, which he uh, celebrated in Beamer fashion. I don't know if folks have seen the video on, on Twitter of uh, Coach Beamer doing a little dance, post-game dancing in the locker room. But yeah, DJ Uyunglele is really playing efficient football. He had a pick Saturday at, at, at BC, but he's he's running the ball well. He he threw some absolute darts for for touchdowns. They dominated the second half, twenty-one nothing to to win thirty-one-three up up at Chestnut Hill. Um, that's that's pretty strong stuff, and. I don't know what to make of Syracuse (laughs) sitting there undefeated and, you know, do do they get their comeuppance? I I don't know. Um, But I imagine uh, it will, if it doesn't come beforehand, it will come against Clemson. Yeah. Syracuse is is so fascinating because certainly you give them a a ton of credit for what they've done, but uh, you know, they escaped against Purdue. They escaped against Virginia. Uh, I think both of those games were at home. Um, yes. You know, so what do we really know about them? I mean, their their wins are they beat Louisville soundly. Louisville's not very good. They beat UConn soundly. UConn's terrible. And they beat Wagner, who's who's an FCS team. Um, and then they escaped Virginia and Purdue with, with three and two-point wins, respectively. So um, we are going to find out about Syracuse. They play NC State. NC State, again, up there, though. At Syracuse, then they go to Clemson, yeah. then they host Notre Dame, and then they go to Pittsburgh, then they host Florida State, then they play Wake Forest. So <sighs> they have a stretch here, and I'm not saying this will happen because I think they are improved. I've been impressed with what they've done, but it is certainly within the realm of possible that 5-0 and turns into 5-5 and in a hurry with that schedule. And, and, and that's, that's always the thing you have to keep in the back of your mind when you're evaluating the teams is who have they played and who's left on that schedule. Absolutely. And what what a curious game that is with NC State going up there this week. You know, the Wolfpack with an absolutely wild <laughs> come from behind victory Saturday night over Florida State and Raleigh in a way 
you could not have imagined with with Devin Leary on the sideline, his right arm in a sling, not knowing his status moving forward this morning. You know, how how does the Wolfpack handle it? I mean, Christopher Dunn, you know, without him, they would have been done (laughs) because he was four for four. Three of them were deep field goals and he hasn't missed one this year. And he was the difference in that game. That in the most bizarre <laughs> special teams play. Mike, I've been watching and covering football for nearly all of my life. And I have never seen nor heard of a punter crossing the line of scrimmage and then <laughs> kicking the ball away. Yeah. And was- I wouldn't have known the rule interpretation. That's <laughs> That's a penalty. And it's like a turnover right there. You give it away on downs right there, plus a five-yard penalty. Yeah, that was bizarre. And, and maybe the strangest thing was he had nothing but green in front of him. Yes. It, it was like he he made the right – okay, the play breaks down. He made the right read. He was like, I'm going to take off. And at the last second, it's like he, he thought, hey, that guy's going to catch me on the angle. Let me just kick it. And, yeah, he was clearly over – was, that was – never seen it. Every, every week there's something you've never seen, but – that really was uh, maybe maybe as unusual as Abanacanda's yard total mm-hmm. was was that bizarre punt gaff for for Florida State and um, you figure plays like that it's going to be an interesting second half of the season no matter what happens it should yeah. be a lot of fun uh, we hope today was a lot of fun thanks for Mike, listening let, yeah. me, let me interrupt you but before we go let's circle back to the opening uh, I know where you want to go yes the alma mater. Yeah. Yes, JMU is in the top 25. And you, you, and let's make announcement to all our Twitter friends. We understand that the AP top 25 is essentially meaningless. Okay, we get it. Do we know if JMU can compete against the other 24 teams in the poll or the teams ranked below it? No, we don't know that. All we know is that JMU is 5-0. and they beat a pretty darn good App State team on the road when that team was flying high. And they are in their first season of FBS football, and it's a hell of a story. So why would you on Twitter get all angry about JMU being ranked? I mean, come on. Let, yeah, let, I, them, let, them, let them revel in this. Uh, this is this is fun for that campus and that program. And if I were them... You know, I'd be flogging that thing for all it's worth. I'm, I'm with you 100%. I actually had the Dukes in my top 25 ballot Last a week, week earlier. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, and you know, uh, Dustin Dopirak, who I worked with actually covering James Madison in Harrisonburg, he now covers Indiana uh, football and basketball. And we were talking because every week you kind of come down to this. Am I picking the team that would win on a neutral field? Am I picking the team? That, that through merit has earned recognition for what they've done. Uh, and I think the hard thing for fans, I know when they look at my ballot, is the inconsistency of it's a mix for me, right? I mean, there are teams in there. Um, I have Baylor still with two losses. Baylor's two losses are both the top 15 opponents. I think Baylor's pretty darn good. I've kept them in my poll. Uh, but I, And I have JMU. Do I think JMU is better than Baylor? Do I think JMU is better than some of the teams I dropped out for losing a game or two? Probably not. But like you said, you you have to reward what's happened on the field. Um, 
and and I think <laughs> I think what JMU's done is incredibly special. I also think they're pretty darn good. I do right? too. Right? Like you know, like and you're right. We won't necessarily get the answer definitively that they'll play Louisville, um, which certainly I think a loss will be more telling than, than a win would be convincing, um, which is a little unfair. But just watching them play and and know, I, I think that's a good team, and I think that that would be a tough. A- if you're Virginia or Virginia Tech, I think you're pretty darn glad they're not on on your schedule this year. Absolutely, and I'll I'll bet I bet Virginia's not happy to have Coastal on the schedule, yeah. and, and 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 Tech's not thrilled about having to go to Liberty in in, in November because the Flames are. I mean, the Flames are a two point conversion at Wake Forest away from being undefeated. Yeah, and absolutely in my ballot then too. If they had gotten yes, that one, yes, so. absolutely. And and Mike, best I can tell, I think James Madison is the first team ever to hit the top twenty-five in its inaugural FBS season. The closest I can find is Marshall in year three. I was just going to say Marshall had early success, but not not this early. <laughs> um, and you wrote about this too. And, and you know, I, I wrote about it back when it happened to, to Bellarmine. The NCA has got to wake up right and change that rule that makes transitioning teams ineligible for the postseason and, and i wrote about it back when it happened with bellarmine the, the genesis of that rule was teams could move up to to the top level in, in their sport and not necessarily be in a conference and therefore not be regulated in terms of uh, academic standards eligibility all of those things that's no longer the case to, to move up now to make the transition, JMU had to have a conference. They mm-hmm. are regulated. Uh, their players are cleared through through the NCA and all of that. Um, there's absolutely no reason to deny these kids um, a bowl game. I mean, think about it, David. If you if you're transitioning, probably you're going to get your butt kicked, right? Right. So it doesn't matter. But if you're transitioning and you're Bellarmine and you win the conference tournament, well, you've earned the chance to go to the NCAs. If you're JMU and you go out and, and win a conference championship. If you're the highest ranked group of five team, you deserve everything that comes with that. Uh, it's just, it, it's an idiotic position for, for the NCA to rest on, uh, to not address this. And it was, you know, back in March, uh, Ted Gumbert and the, and the A-Sun, they proposed to change this legislation. They proposed a change even earlier and were basically told, well, you got to follow a certain schedule. Then they proposed the change at the right time and, and were voted down. Um, it's really disgusting to me that, that the NCA is going out of its way to deny these athletes the opportunity to compete in postseasons. Yeah, it, it makes absolutely no sense. I understand the theory behind the rule. They don't want team they don't want schools flooding division one with ridiculous dreams of riches and TV exposure and such. So they put these transition guidelines in place. And that's all well and good. You put those parameters up and guardrails for, for the schools and the administrations to meet financially and all that. But don't deny the young people the opportunity to compete. I think it's wrong that JMU is ineligible for the Sun Belt Conference Championship. Absolutely. But I, I get why they the Sun Belt doesn't want them in the conference championship game because then they, in turn, you could have your conference champion ineligible for a bowl, which happened to the Sun Belt in 2014 before it had a championship game. Georgia Southern ran through the league undefeated 8-0 and 9-3 overall and was bowl ineligible. You know, I, I talked to their coach, Willie Fritz, last week about that. He's now at Tulane, and he was great. He said, I really feel badly for JMU. He said, it'd be a darn shame for JMU to be denied a bowl 
uh, and to have that bid go to some other team not nearly as worthy. Yeah, it's it's just it isn't right. And, and, and like we talked about with, with Bellarmine and, and their coach Scott Davenport, you know, they, their league let them play the conference tournament, tournament but they had yeah. they they had the bylaw in there, which they knew going in. Um, you know that the automatic bid would go to the regular season champion if the league champion was ineligible. Um, but for those kids, right, that doesn't change it. They still won, they still earned, and they didn't get what they deserved. And um, that's another reason that I think it's great to see JMU in the top twenty-five because I think it's important for that program and those players to get the recognition they're earning because it, it isn't coming from the NC2A. Yep, no doubt. Well, hopefully they'll keep it going. Hopefully you'll keep listening. Thanks for joining us today. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer and yours truly. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next time.